0: Good morning, everybody. My name is Jordan. Uh, I am one of the pastors here at Renaissance. Uh, very glad to be with you all today. Uh, we have a couple exciting things happening in the life of Renaissance. Uh, the first really exciting thing is that on February 9th, we are launching our middle school ministry uh, here at, at Renaissance. Uh, our very own Shawana Bell, I can't see anything. Is Shawana in the audience right now? No? Our very own Shawana Bell is gonna be leading that uh, ministry. I remember a couple years ago, I was sitting in our office and uh, Shawana was with a, a group full of uh, middle schoolers. And my heart goes out to anybody who works with middle schoolers first and <laughs> foremost. It's a very difficult population. And I was sitting in the, I was sitting in the room, like ear hustling on her teaching this Bible study. And I'm like, yo, she is a monster. Like I couldn't get anything done because I was like so blown away by how profound and how capable she is at communicating the gospel to middle schoolers, and we are so happy. Uh, Shawana has been a part of our core team. Uh, I, we've known her for about six years, and we are very grateful for her. What that also does is it opens up another volunteering uh, option, and a lot of you, uh, maybe you hear the announcement for kids volunteers, and you're like, I don't know, I could do kids. Middle school might be your thing. Uh, right after service we 've mentioned it in our announcements and in emails, but we 're having an all volunteer training and If you might even want to get involved with uh, middle school ministry, you can go to the uh, is it cafeteria you can go to the cafeteria after service or if you 're in any other crew or want to be in any other crew, you can go to the cafeteria after service. Uh, as well to get trained on that. So very excited for that. Uh, Keep an eye out on maybe middle schoolers or parents of middle schoolers that you could even invite to be a part of that. And we're going to really be praying for Shawana and all of her efforts in that. All right, let me pray before we get into the message today. Uh, God, our Father, um, Lord, you know so many things on our minds, on our hearts that we've come into today. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to meet you here in this present moment. Lord, we don't have the past to change. We don't have the future to control, but we do have this moment. And I pray that you would meet us here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so we are a diverse church and we have a lot of different experiences that you've grown up with. Uh, In my household, there was a phenomenon uh, in my family that might not make sense to every single culture in in the lobby after you can tell me whether or not your family did this. But like, there was a living room, but nobody was allowed to go in there. (laughs) Like there was a couch, but nobody was allowed to sit on it. If you were allowed to sit on it, it's because they put the plastic on top of it. (laughs) I remember my aunt's house, like on a hot summer day sitting on the couch, uh, plastic covering it with your—it was shorts on, sticking to your thighs. It is—it is not a good feeling. Now I understand for financial reasons that they were trying to maximize the amount of time that the couch would be preserved in its best condition. However, I've always struggled to wonder, like, why would you buy a couch and not use it? right? Like the manufacturers build this thing to specifications so that people can sit on it and enjoy it. Like couches are amazing. Have you ever like laid out on a couch and just chilled out? They are incredible. (laughs) Like why would you have a couch and not use it? Uh, The same question could also be posed about our faith. Why would you have a faith that's not functional, that doesn't get put into practice? Now, a lot of us unconsciously, subconsciously and consciously, have a version of faith that's like my Aunt Lucille's couch. It looks good, but it's not something that we use too often. Now, last week we talked about faith, and I want to kind of bring us back up to speed a little bit uh, and talk about what what is faith before we get into uh, how we put it into practice and what it looks like in our lives. Uh, Faith is more than a feeling. It's more than just like a motivation uh, to do something, right? Our feelings come and go and come again, and our feelings are not a good guide for us in life. One of the things uh, Pastor A.R. Bernard in Brooklyn uh, always says is we have to be smarter than some of the emotions uh, than, that we feel. Sometimes we'll feel an urge to do something, and we have to know uh, when's a good time to do something and when is not a good time to do something. Our faith is it's not a feeling Faith is also not a formula. It is not something that you can plug into a divine calculator to get God to do what you want him to do. It's bigger than that. And faith is also not just something to have just for the sake of having it. Uh, You need more than just strong faith. You need faith in the right thing. It's more important that you have faith in the right thing than it is for you to have like a whole lot of strong faith. The object of what you put your faith in is more important than the strength of your faith. If I have faith that the Knicks are going to win a championship, it doesn't matter how strongly I believe that, it's gonna be a long time that I'll be holding on to that uh, promise and believing that. What you put your faith in is more important than how strong your faith is. Now, last week we defined faith as this. It's a belief in God that leads to action. Faith is a belief in God that is not ornamental. It's functional. It is a belief in God that leads us to action. And uh, the sad reality of it is that no one of us, any one of us who wants to follow Jesus, none of us are exempt. There's a scripture in Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. He presents a dichotomy of two different options, two different paths, two different choices we can make. We can choose to walk by what we see, or we can choose to walk by faith. And God calls us all to walk by faith, not by sight. Now, quite honestly, that's a terrifying thing because when you are called to walk by faith and not by sight, oftentimes there are things right in front of you that you can see that make faith seem almost impossible. But in that gap, when you trust God with the gap of walking by faith and not by sight, then you're able to see God move in ways in your life that you would never be able to experience otherwise. Now, tattooed on my ring finger is Ephesians 3.20. Um, Not the whole thing, just the letters. My fingers aren't that big. Um, And it says, now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. The Bible tells us that we walk by faith and not by sight because what you can see is a limiter. You and I are not able to even conceive of what God can do in and through us. And as a result, God calls us to walk by faith. Some of the most profound and amazing things in my life have come Uh, in walking by faith, and I've seen Ephesians 3.20 manifested in my life on on a number of occasions. This church is a huge uh, uh, example of that. Uh, Years ago, when I remember dreaming about what God could do through our uh, little small group that met on 121st Street, and uh, to be honest, I, I never conceived or dreamed that God could do what he has done and is doing through this community. And I'm not talking about numbers and size. I'm talking about the impact that God wants to accomplish in and through New York City, through this faith community of, called Renaissance. I've also seen this personally in my own life when in meeting my wife and all of the ways that God just blew the doors off my mind and the things that I thought God could do, God exceeded those expectations I don't know that she would say the same thing, but for me, um, God blew the doors off of my mind and what is possible. God calls you to walk by faith and not by sight. God wants your faith to be functional. He doesn't want it to be ornamental, something that looks good, that you set off in a corner. He wants it to be something that you put in to practice. Now, today I want, us, I want to talk specifically to the daydreamers, uh, not the people who are daydreaming right now while I'm preaching. Uh, (Laughter) I'm talking about the daydreamers, the people who have ever wondered what God could do through your life. Like, have you ever thought about that? Like, what could God do through you? I'm not talking about making you famous one day. That's, that's too small. Like, what could God, the creator of the universe, what could God do through your life? Have you ever daydreamed that? Well, we're gonna approach a scripture in the Bible in just a little bit that shows us what it looks like for Jesus to use people. And spoiler alert, it's oftentimes above, well above and beyond our our comfort zones, but it produces a fruit in our lives that we could have never imagined uh, otherwise. Now, all of us in here, anyone who has, uh, anyone who's a Christian, God does have things for you to do. Uh, In Ephesians 2 and 10, it tells us, for we are his workmanship. God's creation, God's masterpiece, it says created in Christ Jesus for good works, and good works are things to do, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Paul is writing a letter to the entire Ephesian church. This is not just to the leadership. This is not just to the people who preach sermons. This is to the entire body of believers in this church at Ephesus, and Paul is saying God has created you in Christ Jesus, and he has prepared ahead of times." Things for you to do. And those things are going to require that you walk by faith and not by sight. I once heard a story about the African antelope, and these are majestic creatures who can leap, you know, 30 feet um, uh, in one one gallop, and they can jump 10 feet in the air, but yet you can keep them in captivity with a three-feet fence. The reason is they'll never jump unless they can see where their feet are going to land. For a lot of us, we have a capacity inside of us that is far greater than uh, our activity because we don't necessarily see where our feet are going to land. We don't know how it's going to end, so we stay in captivity. We stay in a a place of paralysis, never taking the next step out of fear. In order for God to move us... um, To do what God has prepared ahead of time for us to do, uh, it's going to require that we walk by faith and and not by sight. Now, one of my goals here as a pastor at at Renaissance is that every single person who is a part of our faith community, every person who comes to place their faith in Jesus moves from a consumer to a contributor. That you move from simply consuming and uh, coming to church, thinking about what you can get out of it to being a contributor, not necessarily just to renaissance, but to the global kingdom in general, the kingdom of God in New York City. I was talking to my boy, Kenny Hart, who's a a church planter and a pastor at the gathering in Harlem, and he asked me this question that I I was just so blown away by, he was talking about, man, what would it look like if the kingdom of God came to Harlem? Not a church, forget the church. What would it look like if the embodied kingdom of God was present in Harlem. It would mean it's a group of people who are not just consumers, we are contributors and we are motivated and moved into action with a functional faith, relying on God and trusting in God every step of the way. I think we would see some amazing things happen in our life. Now, we're in the book of John and uh, I wanna look at John 6. Uh, We're skipping over John 5, we're gonna come back to that next week because this one talks about faith and since we talked about it last week, I really wanted To tie these two together. And this uh, story in John 6 is so important that every single gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all include this one miracle. Uh, The only other miracle that's listed in all four accounts of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus. So this one is a really important miracle that we see happen, and it's when Jesus uh, fed 5,000 people. Here's how it starts in verses 1 through 3 in John 6. It says... After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now, this story starts off with Jesus uh, and his disciples coming back from performing miracles, and his disciples were all excited because they had seen um, Jesus use them in profound ways, And Jesus was allowing them to do things that they never thought they could do. But all of a sudden, the story takes a little bit of a turn because later the people find out that Jesus is in town and this huge crowd starts to form. Uh, And this is before social media and and all different things. But at this point in his life, Jesus was, and his reputation so preceded him that everywhere he would go, uh, a crowd would start to form. So uh, after he finished preaching, and actually Luke gives us some details that I want to look at. It says, late in the day, the 12 approached him and said, send the crowd away so that they can go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find food and lodging, because we are in a deserted place here. Now, it was late, and it, was, uh, it wasn't it was like people could hop in a car and drive home. They had a long journey to go and to walk, and the disciples they thought that they were being thoughtful and helpful by saying, Jesus, it's getting late, we need to send them away so that they can um, get home without having to walk in darkness. And Jesus comes back with them to them with something that they never would have thought about on their own. He says, you give them something to eat, he told them. Now it's late, it's nowhere to buy food, and they wouldn't have had the money uh, even if there was a Costco back then with enough food for that many people. And here's what Jesus does. Here's what he does to them and here's what he'll, he'll do to you. He disrupts their agenda. What they thought was gonna happen that day, Jesus throws an immediate curveball. Now one way that you know that you are in real relationship with the Jesus of the Bible and not the Jesus of your imagination is that there are routine interruptions in the plans that you thought you had for your life in the way that God is actually bringing them out. I would be very concerned if Jesus just somehow agrees with your entire 10-year plan. He's like, oh, this is great. This is fantastic. Yeah, man, go for it. Let's let's get it. I would be very, very concerned if that was the case. what you see all throughout scripture is that Jesus completely interrupts people's agendas and people's plans for themselves. Most people, man, here's one of the things I found to be true. I work with a lot of people who are church planters, and they leave jobs and start a church. And I'm always kind of concerned whenever someone, like, has always wanted to do this. To be honest, I mean, not, not saying God doesn't call people like that, but I'm always concerned whenever someone has, like, always, always wanted to do this, they've always wanted a microphone, they've always wanted to preach, and I'm like, man, that just, that doesn't line up so much with what you see in Scripture, where people who actually were doing things for God, they were the last people to want it. The way that I got into ministry was um, me and my boy were starting a Bible study in college, and I had no desire, no desire to teach at all. My goal was to invite the people my friend was going to teach about, and this was 2000, and this was before, like like you had an email, everybody had hotmail addresses, but uh, (laughs) it wasn't like you even gave your friends your email address, right? And like the way that we gathered people was all word of mouth, and all I had was people's dorm extensions, and I didn't even know everybody's number, but I knew that for this one Bible study, we had about 40 people who were going to show up to this Bible study. A couple days in advance, my friend told me, hey man, uh, he had an issue in his spiritual walk with uh, his own purity and stuff, and he says, hey man, I don't feel good enough to teach it, Uh, we're going to have to cancel it. I was like, dude, like, we're going to lose all the credibility we have if we just cancel this thing, because it's not like, I don't even know like who, who, who everybody is coming. It's not like I can just send an email blast out to people and cancel it. So I started uh, basically randomly calling people on campus who I knew were Christian to say, hey, yo, yo, Chris, what up, baby? Uh, what are you doing on Tuesday? He's like, uh, I don't know. I was like, do you want to teach a Bible study? He's like, no, I don't want to do that. That's a terrible... <laughs> Terrible idea. And I started calling random friends on campus. And then finally, I went back to my friend. I said, dude, bro, please, just teach it. God forgives you, bro. God forgives you. Just teach this joint. And I remember him saying to me in so many words, hey, if you want it so bad, then, then you teach it. I went back to my room that day and dusted off the TD Jake sermon series that my aunt had sent me. And I listened to six hours of T.D. Jakes sermons to prepare for a 30-minute Bible study. (laughs) And it went exactly how you think it went. Uh, It was the worst Bible study anybody has ever taught. (laughs) But I remember standing up there that day and realizing that God had disrupted my plans. That for the rest of my life, I I actually think that I want to do this, even though I'm terrible at it. If God doesn 't disrupt your plans, if God doesn't throw a curveball, if God doesn 't take you down a path that you were already intending to go, maybe it's not the Jesus of the Bible that's given that's calling the shots in your life so Jesus invites them into ministry, disrupts uh, their life, and uh, it verse picks up in verse four and says "Now the Passover a Jewish festival was near and I 'm switching back to John I was just in Luke um, It says, so when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked this to test them, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each one of them to have a little. Here's what I know to be true about God. Here's what I know to be true about a functional faith. God calls us to get involved despite Your massive limitations. Massive limitations. Philip says, Jesus, it's gonna take 200 denarii. This is like six months' wages worth of food. So, Jesus, like, we don't, where are we gonna get six months' wages worth of food to feed these 5,000 people? And most scholars say that it was actually probably around 15,000 people because they only counted the men, they didn't count the women and the children. So, where are we gonna get all of this food? Philip starts with his limitations. And most of us do that as well. Whenever we consider uh, what God might be calling us to do or we daydream about what God might have for us to do, I think the first thing we think about is where we are inadequate. And that's not a bad place to start, uh, but I think we miss out on the beauty of the message of what Jesus is trying to present to us, that whatever our little placed in the hand of the master is always enough. So here's what we see the disciples do. The first thing they did is they procrastinated uh, in Luke, it says, late in the afternoon, or in one version, it says the day was ending. Now, they knew the whole day <laughs> that there was a crowd of 5,000 people there, 15,000 people, and they did nothing about it until very, very, very late in the day. They'll never be the perfect time to obey God. You know what the perfect time is? Right now. There will never be a time where all the stars align and everything feels so perfect and so convenient to do it. And procrastination is one way that you and I uh, have a, a very uh, a faith that is not functional at all. And here's the thing about procrastination. We can make it look real spiritual. Oh, man, I just need your prayers, man. I just need your prayers. Uh, man, I'm just praying and fasting for these next six months about, um, yeah, man, about joining the, uh, the Eats and Greets team, to, about first impressions. <laughs> Like, yo, you ain't eat for six months about doing setup, bro? Uh, you can procrastinate your way, uh, and procrastination is a, is a sign of a faith that is not functional. Uh, there's, there's times in life that we certainly need to seek wisdom and clarity and all these different things, but I have found over and over and over and over again in the things that God calls us to do, 99% of the time, it is not clarity that we need, it's courage that we need. So first, they procrastinated. Secondly, they avoid responsibility. Um, The disciples uh, tell Jesus to send the crowd away so that they can go into the surrounding villages and countryside and get something to eat. For here we are in a desolate place. What are they doing? They're passing off the responsibility. Hey, I didn't invite these people over here anyway. Nobody told them to come over here, and now you want me to feed them, and, and Jesus doesn't allow them to avoid responsibility. And the third thing they did is what I do so often uh, is they worried? Uh, this is when they start to do the math and crunch the numbers and get analytical. And they start to look at the, 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 the resources, not the source. One of the problems in a faith that's not functional is that it focuses in on the resource and not the source. It focuses in on what you have and what you don't have, and it doesn't focus in on the infinite God who calls us and promises to be with us. On the infinite God that says, I have prepared good things in advance for you to do. So the disciples were looking at the resource and not the source. And if you and I are to have a functional faith, then we will need to keep our eyes on the source, not the resource. Look to the source, not the resource. So the story continues in verse 8, and it says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish but what are they for so many? Now, one of the things that we see in this gospel account is that Jesus asked the disciples, what do they have? And I think that's so profound because God always starts with what you have, not with what you wish you had. God always starts exactly and precisely with what you have, not with what you wish you had. We always wish we had more uh, of, you know, the list can go on and on and on, But God always starts precisely with what you have, not with what you wish you had. He does this because there is no lack when you add him to the equation. When you add Jesus to the equation, there is no such thing as a lack. And starting with what we wish we had is another way to kind of make excuses and procrastinate in in our life. So what do you have right here in front of you? What relationships do you have? What resources do you have? What reputation do you have? God always starts with what you have, not with what you wish you have. One of the best ways to start to put our faith into practice is not to always be thinking about what more we could have, but rather starting with exactly what we have right now, trusting that God can do something with it. So Jesus calls us to get involved right where we are using exactly what we have. You do not need to have it all figured out right now. This is not what Jesus wants from us. Now, the last thing we see in the scripture is something that for me is very personal, but also uh, it's a challenge, and I don't want to make this seem like it's something that's easy at all, is that God oftentimes pushes us well beyond our comfort zones to a place where we have to rely on him. This is what functional faith looks like. It means that God pushes you beyond your comfort zone to a place that both feet are out, and you have to rely on him. In verse 10, This part is a a part that you can read through too quickly and and miss out on what uh, is happening. Jesus says, have the people sit down. So right before this, they say, Jesus, Jesus says, what do we have? They say, two fish, five loaves. Jesus says, great, have everybody sit down. Tell them food is coming. They're like, no, 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 Jesus. (laughs) Jesus, two fish, five loaves. Me and I, look at the crowd, buddy, like this, look, look, look at this. Jesus says, oh yeah, no, and I heard you, I heard you. Great, have the people sit down. Put yourself in their shoes for a second. Imagine what it feels like, imagine what it felt like to have to walk down and to start to tell hungry people, women and kids, people who are hangry, to say, hey, guess what, No, 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 don't leave. Food is on its way. And you know in your brain... That unless Jesus does something miraculous, you are going to look like a fool. When's the last time that faith for you put you in that position? That unless Jesus came through, you were going to look like a fool. To some of my friends who are single and, man, you guys are struggling through uh, sometimes what feels like, I'm sure, a terrible dating market, and a terrible dating pool, and it feels like I'm just gonna start doing it my way because the way that I've been doing it, God's way, this doesn't feel like it's gonna work. And here's what I wanna tell you. I'm not promising you anything today or tomorrow, but I am telling you this. God does his best work when we put all of our faith in him and saying, God, unless you come through for me, I'm gonna look like a fool. This is when Jesus does his absolute best work over and over again throughout the Bible, the most profound things that Jesus does in people's lives are when, when they are willing to put their faith in him. Now, again, I'm not making any promises on timeline or what, it's, what life is going to look like. I'm not a prosperity preacher. I don't want I don't to get on stage and promise that God's going to give you your best life now. That's not what I believe. But I do believe that God does his absolute best work in the lives of people who put both feet out and say, God, unless you move in my life, I'm gonna look like an idiot. And the disciples here, they do that. They're obedient to Jesus and they say, Jesus, all right, we're gonna have everybody sit down. They go around and then while they're walking out, Jesus takes the bread, he breaks it, and he blesses it. And it says, Jesus took the loaves and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also with the fish as much as they wanted, as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, truly, this this truly is a prophet who has come into the world. They had so much that they can feed the 5,000 with leftovers, The message in this text is that our insufficient becomes sufficient in the hands of Jesus Christ. The little loaves suddenly become an overabundance of plenty. God does his best work when people put both feet out, have a functional faith, and allow themselves to see God work. Now, man, again, I said this is absolutely not easy in life uh, one of the things that I struggle with, and you know, I, I have a therapist for this very reason, I have a lot of anxiety about how life is going to work out because I love control. I, I love to know what's going to happen next, uh, and it's something that is a challenge for me every single week. Uh, before I went on sabbatical, or the first couple of weeks of sabbatical, I was like waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning miserable because I didn't know what was going on, and I was so far away. We were in Mexico City. And uh, Mexico City is amazing, the vibes, the culture is incredible. But for the first couple of weeks, I just couldn't, I just couldn't let go and, and, and trust. And I know how difficult it is to actually just let go of something that's very important to you and make that vulnerable and put that in the hands uh, of God. And here's what I know to be true, what got me through and might be helpful for you to get you through is we need to look to the source, not to the, to the resource. Hebrews 12 and two tells us, keeping our eyes on Jesus the author, the source, and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When I I look to Jesus, the one who went to the cross for me, it kind of melts my fears away. And this is why we come back to the gospel every single time. We come back to the cross, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, because a life oriented around the cross, in some ways, will rid us of our anxiety and our frustration and our fear. And I'm not talking about clinical anxiety. I'm talking about the the sinful anxiety that we have that's rooted in a lack of trust in, in God. When I look to Jesus on the cross, I see a Savior who has no limit for what he will do in my life, and it allows me to say, Jesus, I don't necessarily know where my feet are going to land, but I know you have my best intentions at heart. This week, may we have the courage to put one foot and then both feet in front of ourselves and to trust God to do something with our lives that we could not do on our own. We pray for us. Heavenly Father, you're good. You're really good. Yeah, Even when we can't see how good you are, Lord, I pray for the courage for my brothers and my sisters, for me, Lord, to walk in faith, to have a functional faith, to put it into practice, even when we don't see where our feet are going to land. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.